Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Um, so I've got a GPS where you can download different people's voices and they direct you around when you're driving. And the voice I've downloaded is, um, is Bonnie Tyler. And it's, it's great and everything, but, um, but it keeps telling me to turn around. And every now and then it falls apart. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from British multi-instrumentalist Jack Garrett. His debut album just came out, and he's touring the U.S. now. Other guests this hour include award-winning actor Viola Davis, musician M. Ward, and stage and screen star Alan Cumming confronts his fears. Gosh, Taylor Swift scares me. He's a brave man. Plus, Jane's Addiction guitarist Dave Navarro talks about his intense new documentary, and we learn about the time New York almost went down the tubes. But first, as at any party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. From Super Tuesday's elections, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are now in the driver's seat for the nominations of their respective parties. The fifth sanctions package on North Korea at the U.N. level. NASA astronaut Scott Kelly is hours away from returning to Earth. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Helen Rosner. She is the executive editor at Eater, the wonderful food website. She's also the co-host of their podcast, The Eater Upsell. Helen Rosner, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I want to talk about robotic animals that are being deployed to catch poachers. Oh, my wow. God. I'm imagining the Revenant. Is, is that what it's like? Is it like that's, a digital bear? That's right. <laughs> taking down a guy? That's what I was hoping for. I mean, I, Yeah, that um, sounds but, very frightening. <laughs> but sadly, no. There's this company called Robotic Decoy that produces basically animatronic taxidermy animals that people can put out in the wild in areas where you don't Mm. want people to hunt, territory that they shouldn't be hunting on, and then you hide behind a bush, hopefully not where they're going to shoot you by accident, and you can spring out and catch the poachers in the act. Of trying to get this (laughs) robot animal. Wouldn't it be cheaper just to put out a case of beer and some jerky or something? Like, (laughs) Isn't that also an effective way to catch hunters? But it looks less cool than taxidermied animals that have motors inside of them. (laughs) I see. Can they walk around and stuff? Like, What what do the motors do? I don't think the technology is there yet, sadly. Um, But the motors will do things like twitch the tail or subtly move the head or the ears, just twitchy enough that they can fool a stupid human. Quite literally, the hunter becomes the hunted. Oh, bravo. This is more... And even if you don't catch poachers, though, you could charge 50 cents and have kids just come look at these little animated creatures. Yeah, one way or another, you win. Yeah, that's basically... It's like an amusement park starter kit. (laughs) It's the entire Disney World model. (laughs) Ellen Rosner, thanks so much for the small talk. It's a pleasure to be here. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then challenge a bartender to capture its essence in cocktail form. It's our straightforwardly titled History Lesson with Booze. First, the history part. This week back in 1870, inventor Alfred Eli Beach became an underground sensation. Quite literally, Michelle Philippi tells the tale. You think traffic is bad in New York City? You should have seen it in the 19th century. Imagine armies of horses, carts, and carriages charging down Broadway without road lines to guide them or stoplights to stop them. No crosswalks either. Cops had to clear a path through the melee so pedestrians wouldn't get trampled. Enter Alfred Eli Beach, an inventor and co-publisher of the magazine Scientific American, 
He knew London had solved their traffic problems by building railways underground. Beach wanted to do the same, except his underground would work like the pneumatic mail tubes in office buildings, using a giant fan to blow train cars back and forth down a tunnel. Beach knew it sounded crazy, so he got a permit to install a few little mail tubes deep below Broadway, and instead secretly began digging an eight-foot diameter train tunnel, New York's first-ever subway. It was not like the one we know today. For one thing, the station, located beneath a clothing store, was luxuriously appointed with frescoes, statues, easy chairs, and a fish pond. And it wasn't exactly practical. The entire two-minute ride carried passengers, oh, about a block. The point, of course, was to prove it could work. And when Beach unveiled his subway, tens of thousands of passengers found it delightful. Alas, the powers that be didn't. Elevated above-ground railways were cheaper to build, and landowners worried underground tunnels would make their buildings collapse. The Beach Pneumatic Transit Tunnel was sealed shut, and 40 years later it was demolished. To make way for the subway, New York had decided to build after all. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. We are speaking with Sarah Tykul. She is head bartender at Ward 3, a bar in Tribeca right above the Beach Pneumatic Railway's original subway route. And Sarah, what drink did that story inspire? So I named the cocktail The Underground, and I wanted to do a cocktail that is whiskey-based. Okay. As we are a whiskey bar. Oh, well, then that helps you have a lot of it around. Yes, exactly. <laughs> a lot of inspiration around. Uh, I use 100 proof rye. Okay. Uh, also, cherry herring, which is a cherry liqueur. Punta Mess, which is a, an Italian vermouth. It has the air of the Manhattan cocktail to it. Absolutely. Being that the bar and the subway were in Manhattan, that seems appropriate. Absolutely. And then just a touch of absinthe. Why the absinthe? It's like such a strong flavor, it seems like. Uh, well, it's just to give it just a little kick. And it's just very unexpected. Kind of like the subway, actually. I exactly. just thought they were getting a mail tube, and all of a sudden they had a transit system. For sure. That had a lot to do with it. It sounds like a delicious cocktail. I will say, though, since it's based on a subway, to really kind of nail the theme, it shouldn't work all the time. Like, every now and then, this drink shouldn't get you drunk. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a dark, bold cocktail, and I feel... When you're digging out a subway, it's got to be pretty dark down there. And it was a pretty bold move for Beach to take this on. And it packs a punch. It will definitely blow you away. Uh, Just like the fans that blew the trains. Exactly. Exactly. That's my point. God, you should rename this the terrible pun. (laughs) I'm full of them all day. Sarah Tykul, head bartender at Ward 3 in Manhattan. And, Brendan, ever since hearing that history, I've been trying to imagine fish ponds (laughs) in the New York subway. Yeah. I think in the category things I'd least want to be reincarnated as, New York subway fish gets my vote. It's no place for them. I will stay on land. Uh, But, folks, you're free to swim all around on our website. All our cocktail recipes are there, dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the soundtrack, in which a great musician DJs your dinner party. And today our guest is Portland-based M. Ward. Along with Zoe Deschanel, he's half of the nostalgia pop duo She and Him. But Ward has been releasing acclaimed solo albums full of smart indie folk since the late 90s. 
His latest, called More Rain, came out this week. Here he is to DJ a party full of people whose names he can't recall. Hello, everybody. My name is M. Ward, and here is my dinner party soundtrack. Song number one is a song by a band called NRBQ, one of my all-time favorite bands. And uh, the song I would choose is Me and the Boys. Just a bunch of guys getting in the car, no matter who's driving off or how far. Feels so good, feels so loud, no backseat driver still is out of drive. Me and the boys. The way that I got hooked on NRBQ was through Ira from Yola Tango. Um, Yola Tango does an annual benefit in Hoboken, New Jersey, and Ira had one of their songs on the list for songs to cover that night. And uh, once you start hearing some of their songs and you start getting into their records, it's a it's a rabbit hole that you never get out of. It's just a great rock and roll song. The tempo, the sound of the guitars, it seems like a good song to start off the dinner party because it wakes you up. People are arriving, hanging up their coats, learning people's names, learning the dog's name. Uh, if anyone has tips, you know, on better ways to, to memorize people's names, I will accept them. While you sit and seek a crescent moon is laying at your feet, we'll hope that's made of sand. There's a singer whose music I discovered a couple of years ago named Judy Sill. As far as I know, she only made two records in the early 70s. She had some kind of a drug problem, and she passed away very young. But um, I highly recommend both of her records, and uh, I'm going to put on my dinner party soundtrack, Lady O from Judy Sill. Judy Sill's voice to me sounds like a, um, a cross between Joni Mitchell and, and a man. In general, she stays at a pretty low register, but um, the way she sings the chorus, it sort of just floats into the room, and her approach is never heavy-handed and um, perfect for the song. Everyone has uh, probably forgotten each other's names at this point, and maybe there's something continuously cooking on the stove. Uh, Scott McPherson, who's one of my favorite drummers and friends in the world, maybe we can have the party at his house. He's got a great little backyard. So I recently discovered a guitar player named James Burton, who is probably in his 70s or 80s now, but he played a lot with Elvis Presley and... Um, the song I would choose is Baby What You Want Me To Do and listen closely to this guitar playing. I know he's a big name in guitar circles. You know a guitar player's good when Elvis Presley, who owned the world, stops singing and at one point just says, you know, take it away, James. And instead of some blistering solo with a thousand notes, he comes out and just does two notes. There's a lot of power in that. Hey, 
So I would never in a million years play one of my own songs at a dinner party, but the song that I'm currently most excited about is Girl from Caneo Valley. Caneo Valley is a, a suburb of, of Los Angeles. It's a very quiet, serene place to grow up. And uh, I did have a couple friends in Caneo Valley who rode motorcycles. And um, there's a character in the song who's a, a motorcycle guy, and we gave him a hard time because we never really knew what his name really was. Motorcycle Wilson, last name's a mystery. Charges for rides in his sidecar seat. And my old girlfriend to not to but now rides for free A dinner party soundtrack from M. Ward. His eighth solo album, More Rain, came out this week. All right. Coming up, actor Viola Davis pulls the mask off her character in How to Get Away with Murder. And Broadway star Alan Cumming tells us about the best wedding ever. For real. When the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, Alan Cumming, former star of Broadway's Cabaret, tells us the song he won't sing from Cabaret. And later, Jane's Addiction guitarist Dave Navarro revisits the darkest days of his youth. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's Viola Davis. It's not a stretch to say she's one of the most celebrated actors working today. She won two Tonys and earned two Oscar nominations for the films Doubt and The Help. And just to round things out, she became the first black woman to win an Emmy for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Drama for her starring role in the show How to Get Away with Murder. Davis plays Annalise Keating, a tough-as-nails professor and criminal defense lawyer who recruits students to help her crack cases. Here's a clip. Is the man you're referring to, Prosecutor Hall? Your Honor. Yes. Good God, this is a farce. I'm not the one on trial here. You are now. There's no evidence to support this man's claim. Is the man sitting there not evidence? Both of you calm down. Because it's quite evident to me that he's proof that this case has been nothing more than a conspiracy to commit fraud. From start to finish, the game was rigged. Corners were cut. My client's Fourth Amendment rights were discarded. This is slander, Your Honor. Mr. Hartowa's testimony proves that this case was built on illegal grounds and cutting entrapment. I demand this Keating be sanctioned by this court. It's been Mr. Hobbs' mission to destroy the Lombardo family for more than 15 years. So the criminal in this courtroom is not my client, but the federal government for bringing these bogus charges against my client. Sustained. (laughs) Viola recently became an advocate for the Vaseline Healing Project, which provides medical supplies and skin care to people in crisis. Brendan spoke with her at an event for the organization, and he started by asking her this. In an interview in 2012 with, with my former employer, Terry Gross, by the way, Uh, You said, quote, I don't see a lot of narratives written where a woman who looks like me gets to be beautiful and sexualized and upwardly mobile, middle class, funny, quirky. They're very seldom written. And then this role from How to Get Away with Murder comes along. Was Shonda Rhimes, the the show's executive producer, was she listening to you (laughs) when when she heard that interview? How did did this come about? That's so interesting that she did listen to an interview that I did with Oprah where I said the exact same thing. And huh. that's what sparked, you know, her imagination. And she was, she said, well, why not? Because when I see Viola, I see all those things. Um, yeah. 
So it's kind of, you know, like what they say, it's, you know, when you want something or you're seeking it, that you put it out there and the universe somehow opens, yeah. opens and finds a way. Also, Oprah helps, too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Oprah always helps. So how did it feel to inhabit this character, which, which was a shift for some of the things you've uh, been in before? You know, I have to say that it's been the highlight of my career. But there's a part of me, and see, this is where a lack of opportunity can do a job on your brain, that a part of mm. me felt like, can I even do it? Do I even deserve it? And then all of a sudden it plops on your lap and my first instinct as an actor is to go for it. And the reason why it's been a highlight is because it's been transformative for me. It's not a role that is within my comfort zone. It's not a role that I've seen often with women who look like me. So it's been groundbreaking on a personal level and an artistic level. In the first season, I, I think I've heard you talk about this, there's a scene where Annalise kind of comes home, takes off her wig, takes off her makeup, takes off her eyelashes, and you see this shift from this external-facing kind of power lawyer and this more vulnerable woman. I, you argued for that scene, or, or is that correct? Yeah. I One of the agreements I had with Pete Nowak, who is a creator and Shonda Rhimes and Betsy mm -hmm. Beers is, I said, I want to take my wig off. Now, that mm. in and of itself is like, okay, she's taking her wig off. But I knew what I could achieve with that would be something much greater, which is the feeling of being unmasked. And the mm -hmm. reason why is because there's so often I see women on the screen and I don't recognize them. They're not women mm. that I know. It, it, it's, like, it's like a woman who's been through a filter, and then she comes out, and there's pieces <laughs> that I recognize. But mostly, it's a Mr. Potato Head of male desirability. And I just felt like if I'm going to sign a seven-year contract, I didn't want to just see the mask. So I knew if they wrote a scene where I took my wig off, it would force them to write the other side of that woman because it's such a bold act of me taking off my lashes and my makeup and my yeah. wig, seeing Absolutely. my hair underneath that you positively would not be able to ignore that. Annalise has some overlap with you. She, she's immensely successful, but has very humble roots. Your Central Falls, Rhode Island youth was a far cry from Hollywood. Uh, and, it, and it sounds like growing up, your parents were big advocates for the underserved. Yeah, they were. My mom was involved in the Blackstone Valley Community Action Program. They were just a group of women who were working class poor or just poor who wanted something better for their children's lives. And they were instrumental in bringing a health clinic to um, Central mm. Falls and having um extracurricular activities um, for the kids that were free. And I watched that growing up. Did I read this correctly? And it landed your, your mom in jail a few times, <laughs> right? She always says, Viola, I, I, your mama was not in jail. I was in a holding cell. So I have to correct <laughs> oh. it because she was... <laughs> okay, she, she was, only a holding cell. Yeah, she was speaking at Brown University and I was with her too. And so yeah. we were in the holding cell for a few hours. <laughs> 
And this is based on her activism for... Yeah, because she was very much into uh, welfare reform. We were on public assistance, mm. but we didn't want to stay on public assistance. So she wanted more job opportunities. She wanted more educational opportunities. And so she was really instrumental in you know, just fighting for that in the 70s. Well, in your own way, you're continuing that legacy. Um, you know, with, with your film acclaim uh, and now this mega hit TV show, you've become a household name. And I imagine that as a celebrity, you get approached to lend your name to causes, um, many more probably than you can say yes to. First, a basic question. How do you sift through all of the asks? Well, you know, I, I still do my speaking gigs across the country. Mm-hmm. So I do a lot of that with women's groups. But the Vaseline Healing Project, um, in partnership with Direct Relief, it's just a sheer number of people that it's reaching. Mm. And then learning about Direct Relief, which is an international medical aid organization, the sheer number of people that they service every year. And now this whole initiative to give medical aid to people on the front lines of disaster and crisis, it appealed to me, you know? The poor girl from Central Falls absolutely sits with me all day long in good ways and bad ways. And this is one of the good ways. Yeah. And I, I think I heard you tell a story about how, you know, one of your sisters was injured was burned as a child and and kind of so skin issues actually yeah, she was yeah. she because we were making sugar candy which <laughs> is a, a southern delicacy with grease and sugar and Ugh. she um the flame was on too high so the grease literally sprayed her face and Goodness. she started her her whole skin blistered and my mom put vaseline on it yeah And it was a salve that gave her a lot of relief, you know, before we, you know, sent it to the emergency room. But, you know, Vaseline is, listen, there's no African-American especially that can't tell you about Vaseline. We put it (laughs) on our scalp. We put it on our skin because our skin could get very um, dry and ashy, as we say. But the fact that most people in the front line of disaster and crisis complain about skin infections. Yeah. And if they had petroleum jelly, it would make all the difference in their lives. I want to, I'm just looking at the clock and I want to ask, we, we ask two standard questions. We ask our, our guest of honor. Our okay. first question is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? What question am I tired of being asked in interviews? Um, how do I prepare for a red carpet? I, I, uh, I don't want to say that, but yeah, I'm tired of that one. That's That sounds fair. Uh, and then our, our other question is the in reverse of that, which is, can you tell us something we don't know? And this could be something either about you that you haven't shared in an interview before or just kind of an interesting fact about the world. I think that I would love people to, for, for someone to ask me more about what makes me tick, about mm. what makes me get out of bed in the morning mm. about what I live for or what's keeping me from getting to what I live for. Mm. I like questions like that. What is getting you out of bed and excited um, right now in your life in 2016? You know, what's getting me um, out of bed is the fact that I just feel like I'm a part of this renaissance with how people are seeing women of color especially, that playing Annalise Keating Mm. is giving people a different um, viewpoint into the pathology of women of color, which is that we're just as vast, just as messy, just as beautiful, um, maybe just as dynamic as anyone else. 
because people don't realize that Jim Crow laws are over, segregation is pretty much over, so is slavery, but what's left is a perception. What's left is a mindset. You can't gauge that. But in some ways, I mean, um, in just being a part of Shondaland is that you're changing people's Mm. perception. You're forcing them to come into a world where there's someone who you may not necessarily have even thought of in that way. And I love that because that's exactly why I became an artist. It's exactly why. Viola Davis, and speaking of portraying the whole range of human experience and non-humans, later this year she will appear in Suicide Squad, which is her first comic book movie. So perhaps more accolades are in the offing for her. That's right. And folks, if you want to see the creepy trailer for that film, plus a video of the Oprah interview she alluded to earlier, you can find both at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, we've spun some music, met our guest of honor. Before we let this party go much further, let's take a minute to learn some manners. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this time around is a man the New York Times called, quote, a body countercultural sprite, Mr. (laughs) Alan Cumming. The obvious choice. That's right. On stage and screen, Alan has played, among other parts, Dionysus, the devil, God, a Marvel superhero, (laughs) and every character in a one-man staging of Macbeth. Wow, that's range. In recent years, he's co-hosted The Tonys, Stolen Scenes in the TV drama The Good Wife, written a best-selling memoir, and revived his iconic role as the Master of Ceremonies in the musical Cabaret. Classic. Which is fitting because his new project is an album of live cabaret performances recorded at the famed Cafe Carlisle in New York City, and it's called Alan Cumming Sings Sappy Songs. (laughs) Clearly, you took this exercise deathly seriously. Alan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for being here. We, we first of all, would like you to define sappy. Is that as opposed to genuinely heartbreaking? Are you seeking melodramatic or maudlin stuff? It's, it's actually interesting because I've realized, it, I don't know why this is a surprise, but I don't think of sappy in the same way as American people. Like Sometimes I, you know, I've lived here for like 18 years and I still find that you know, we're divided by a There's common a language. There's a big gap. But uh, sappy to me means um, emotional Maybe a little more emotional than you're comfortable with. But at the same time, it's also going to be fun. Yeah, so there's the, an element of mirth even by yeah. calling it. And you are naked on the cover of this album. <laughs> yes, outside, outside the Café Carlisle. So people know that they're not just going to be, be weeping. No, that's true. It's at the Café Carlisle. So it's in, it's in front of the Carlisle Hotel. Yeah. And you see the kind of classic old classic world tradition. Place. And at the same time, there's me uh, naked with two dancers <laughs> holding a big bottle of champagne in front of my penis. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so... You're clearly winking at the audience as you perform some of these tunes, but well, I don't other- think. I mean, there's only really, I don't, I don't like even when even when I say to the audience some of the songs I, I'm going to sing for you, I never thought I would like. I never thought I would enjoy this artist. When I start to sing them, I am completely in them and, and commit to them, and that's what I that's what I love. I love the way that some a couple of the songs people start tittering a little bit, thinking yeah. he's not going to do that. And then I sing the song for real, and they really it's, it makes them change how they think about the song. Yeah. You do cover some unexpected artists. Miley Cyrus comes to mind. But uh, we wanted to play something uh, from Billy Joel. This is your rendition of his song, And So It Goes. And every time I've held a rose It seems I've only felt the thorns And so it goes and so it goes 
And so will you soon, I suppose. That's so beautiful. Hearing that brogue on Billy Joel is beautiful. Oh, thanks, buddy. Growing up in Metro New York, I mean, Billy Joel, you just, it's what you hear when you go fill up your gas tank. <laughs> you know, or I go to a diner, although, but he's a poet, and I feel like yeah. you really pulled that out. What made you choose that song? I just love it. I think yeah. it's so haunting and beautiful. And what it says is that it's basically someone's been hurt. And so in this song, he's saying, I'm going to, sh- you can break my heart. Yeah. Which is so mm-hmm. awful. I mean, it's so you. beautiful that I'll let you break my heart. And I, I sang another of his songs on my, in my show and on the record. Yeah, uh, Good Night Saigon of all tunes. Good Night Saigon, yeah, which is great. Brilliant song. I mean, it's a you know, it's about veterans of Vietnam. Yeah, and you know, it's actually because it's so intense at the end. I've actually now said whenever I go to different theaters, I said do a blackout immediately at the end of this song because if you don't, the audience are so shocked and it's quite early in the show and they're yeah. like, oh, I thought we we're going to get funny songs, Miley Cyrus, <laughs> and then suddenly it's like that scene in the producers, you know, when the audience is completely horrified. Yeah, they're like that and they don't know what to do and they kind of don't clap. Mm. So I actually. Uh, I try and make sure there's a blackout as soon as I finish it, just to get... The cue the audience. Very clever yeah. trick. Cleanse the palate. <laughs> yeah, inside. And scene. Actually, you say that the seeds of this album were planted during the recent run of the musical Cabaret in your dressing room? Yes. Which you rechristened Club Coming. What was going on at Club Coming, and how did it lead <laughs> well, to this? I mean, really, it's because I, you know, I went back to doing something that I had done 14 years before, you know, at Cabaret, that role, and I was very overwhelmed by it when I did it in 1998. I didn't quite have as much fun as I think I could have because I was so green and didn't. it was a huge thing to happen to me and I was on my own. Mm. Anyway, so this time round, I thought, if I'm going to get through this, aged 50, hello, dancing my tits off with <laughs> all these girls. You don't girls look 50, Alan. Thank you very much. But I, I just thought I'm going to have to have fun every night. And so I kind of, you know, was planning to entertain in my dressing room. But then I got Campari, the booze people, who do all these different types of booze, they said they would sponsor my <laughs> dress bar in my dressing room. So, yeah. Wow. And they, had, they would, sponsored a Scotsman? Like, sp- but, yeah. That, that seems like and you could I, bankrupt I, the company. Seriously? <laughs> I mean, I think, it, and it wasn't just me, it was like everyone who came to Club Coming for a year. And, and I wow. called it Club Coming. I, was, I, mean, I had a neon sign made. Wow. The box office people said that people would come and say, could I have two tickets for the Thursday evening show and two tickets to Club Coming, please? And they were like, you know, it's just really his like, dressing room. Yeah. You can't buy a ticket to get into it. But then eventually we would, like, we sold for charity. We mm-hmm. would do these. You can come to Club Coming on a Wednesday night, which is when I made soup because it was a matinee day. And, we would, and I, I would always DJ. And it's like, there was a bar. Wow. And I was like, oh, so man. people, like, people paid like $15,000 to come to Club Coming. <laughs> Dude, I know, right? And it was always we, just the best fun. So during that time, I would play lots of music and a lot of the songs in the show and on the album, I grew to love in Club Coming. These chances I'm taking, these struggles I'm facing, sometimes might knock me down, but no, I'm not breaking. Alan Cumming, his new album is called Alan Cumming Sings Sappy Songs, and he's given us a new goal, to get a pizza joint to sponsor our studio. We're open to it, you guys. Come on, everybody. Uh, (laughs) You may have noticed in that so-called etiquette segment, Alan didn't actually answer any etiquette questions. Mm -hmm. Never fear, after we take a quick break, he'll be back to do exactly that when the Dinner Party Download continues. The Splendid Table, insightful and useful conversation every single week for your life in and out of the kitchen. Speaking of useful, this week Lynn talks to superstar chef Daniel Ballou in his kitchen about how he makes that garlicky mayonnaise aioli. I am putting one clove of raw garlic who uh, split and remove the germ as now, well. Now why are you taking the germ out? Oh, because that 
one time, you know, I worked in France for a chef called, I didn't work with him directly, but I heard his comment that the germ of garlic was giving a very vulgar taste to the dish. <laughs> it would never have occurred to me that a dish could be vulgar. That's this week on The Splendid Table. Subscribe at iTunes or via your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, we'll hear a brand new song from the genre-busting musician Esperanza Spalding. And in a few minutes, guitarist Dave Navarro bears all in his new documentary, Morning Sun. But first, still with us is Alan Cumming. He won a Tony for starring in Broadway's revival of Cabaret, but more recently he's garnered multiple Emmy nominations playing a blunt crisis manager on CBS's The Good Wife, and we need a blunt crisis manager to take on our listeners' etiquette questions. Alan, you ready for these? Yes. All right. Here's something from Caitlin in Los Angeles. Caitlin writes, I went to school for musical theater. It seems that at any dinner gathering, people ask me to sing something. Ugh. What is your go-to shutdown for a guest or family member that begs you to do something funny or give us a song? Or do you just do it? Um, I don't do it. Really? Caitlin, I, actually, mm. when someone says something like that to me, Often people say to me, oh, say something in an American accent because they know me from the good way yeah. and they can't believe I speak like this in real life. Or if, any, <laughs> if anyone says something like that or, you know, sing a song or blah, 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 I say, uh, there's a variety of things. I say, I'm not a performing poodle. That's number one. Uh, or, and you uh, say that with a Scottish accent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. that's quite yeah. attitudinal there, Alan. And, uh, and or, or else I say, oh, I'm not working right now. There you go. That's, exactly. that's usually good. But this question involves a dinner party where you're surrounded probably by friends yeah. and family. This isn't some random fan. Oh, if it was with friends, I'd be like, oh, come on, f- sake. You really expect, you, like, if you're a, what, you're a doctor, are you going to, like, operate yeah. on someone right now <laughs> exactly. if I say so? If you're, how dare you? And it's usually something, that, or if people want me to do a light, some lines from a film I've done, or sing, the, the number of times I get asked to sing Veal Coming <laughs> from Cabaret. Seriously, it must be thousands of times. People think, wouldn't it be fun if you sang Veal Coming? For, I'm like, no. 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 And so like, so exactly. I, would, I, would, I would, so Caitlin, to answer your question, I would slap them down in a humorous way. The use of the word performing poodle, they get the message. All right. All right. This next question comes from Xaviera in Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm. And Xaviera writes, how do I get my straight man to wear more eyeliner? <laughs> Ooh. Uh, well, I would say show him pictures of boys who've got a bit of a guy eyeliner, a bit of a smoky eye, and mm-hmm. see, see what a, you know, Google me. There's a lot of... Uh, you could Google... Keep me, Alan David Cumming. Bowie, lots of people. Yeah. But I think she needs to say to him that he looks so handsome when he does it. Okay. It's a very, um, you know, masculine look. It's like mm-hmm. people with kilts. Like mm-hmm. when they all think it. Yep. I hate when people say skirts. It drives me nuts. But like you, <laughs> I just did a thing actually for um, NBC. I went to Scotland and made a film visit about visiting yeah, Scotland. Visiting your homeland. And uh, the guy George, who's lovely, George Oliphant, who's the host of it, like he had to get into a kilt. And I could tell he was a little reticent about it. But when we were wearing it, he absolutely got how manly you feel and how yeah. much fun it is to wear a kilt and how like it's nice to have a bit of air up there but you feel <laughs> you swagger in a kilt and I think that's yeah. the thing that uh, kilts and guy liner are two areas All that right. I not just straight men men in general need to wise up about well we should say just start with one maybe not do both when it comes <laughs> home tonight like, yeah. maybe yeah <laughs> that's an issue here we go uh, the next question comes from Genevieve <laughs> in California and Genevieve writes how should you proceed if you discover that you've mocked something a band a TV show etc that your party host likes Oops. Oh, well, I've done that many times. I, I, um, actually, 
Who was it? No, I can't tell you. I can't tell. This is yes. terrible. It's terrible. Come on. Sure you can. Well, like, it's, actually, I can because I, I don't think this anymore. Mm. So but basically, when Emma Stone was in Cabaret, we were chatting about um, Taylor Swift. And I said, gosh, Taylor Swift scares me. <laughs> I just said that. And then um, I went to the dentist or something and I picked up a magazine. There was a picture of Emma and Taylor, you know, uh, in her apartment. Was, friends. Oh, yeah, they're, they're no. friends. So I went back. To, I was like, oh, gosh, Emma, I'm so sorry. I feel I've insulted your, your friend Taylor because I saw the picture in the dentist. And she was like, oh, no, it's fine, blah, blah. But Taylor Swift, she used to scare me yeah. just because she was so kind of powerful and everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. felt like, and I don't know, I felt like she was... Um, she was ubiquitous. I thought she could eat me. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but, but, but now she I... She could take over the country. But now, she could take over the country, but now I kind of, I don't know, something changed and I, I, mm-hmm. I met her and she was absolutely charming. But anyway, the other person who used to scare me was Dakota Fanning. I used <laughs> to be terrified really? of Dakota Fanning. Yeah. Something about her. I think mm. it was partly that I feel that she looked so together and older than she actually really was. Yeah. There was just something about it. So, so I guess the answer, Genevieve, is you should maybe apologize, right? Because that's what you did at first. I would apologize, but not change your, like, say, I'm so sorry. I didn't know you like that person. I don't, I still don't like them. I don't want to insult you. I don't want to offend you. But I'm strong enough to stand by my opinion. Thank you. Stand by, yeah. Be, be a, have <laughs> there Even you go. if you don't. Cojones. Here's our last question. We ask this to everyone who does our etiquette segment. What is the most memorable get-together you have ever been to? Who, what, and where? Details, please. I, th- I think it would have to be the wedding of my lovely friend Liza Minnelli and uh, oh. David Guest in 2002. Because, first of all, she had all these bridesmaids many of whom I thought were dead. Do you know when you see people that you think <laughs> oh, you had mean already iconic, died? Like, iconic women. people who had already di- had died. <laughs> yeah. like Gina Lola Brigida walked down wow. the aisle. I was like, holy right. And then um, Michael Jackson was kind of like the matron of honor. So he was kind of futzing with her, with her veil and everything. That was, oh and that was, goodness. And, then the whole, and the whole thing was held up by a long time because Elizabeth Taylor had got into the car to come and hadn't realized she was wearing her slippers. So they had to go back to the hotel <laughs> and get her shoes. And so we're all hanging around. And Brian May... Played wow. uh, from Queen. The, from Queen, played with with this orchestra. Played We Are the Champions on an electric guitar. It was absolutely oh blew my gosh. mind. At Liza's wedding, who'd yeah. have thunk? So basically, you can never go to a wedding again and actually enjoy it. The yeah, bar is just too high. It, it really, it really is. It's never going to be that good. Wow. Oh man, thanks, Liza. Well, Alan Cumming, I think I think you helped with the greater good by answering our listeners' etiquette questions. That was fun. I liked them. Thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. <laughs> thanks, boys. Alan Cumming. His new album is called Alan Cumming Sings Sappy Songs Live at the Carlisle, not to be confused with Iron Maiden's seminal album Live After Death. Yes, those are very different works. They are both British, though. I get it. And folks, uh, if you're confused about the proper way to behave, you can always send your etiquette questions to us via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Back in the late 1980s and 90s, the L.A. band Jane's Addiction became one of the defining rock bands of the era, racking up five Grammy nominations and launching the Lollapalooza Rock Festival. With their blend of progressive metal and psychedelia, they still sell out tours whenever they emerge from periodic hiatuses. Dave Navarro is the band's lead guitarist. He's also played with the Red Hot Chili Peppers and hosts the radio show and podcast Dark Matter, which is an apt description of his latest project, the documentary Morning Sun. Mm. Directed by Todd Newman, it's about Dave coming to terms with the death of his mother, who was murdered by her ex-boyfriend when Navarro was 15 years old. When I spoke with him this week, I first asked why he made a film about the murder, 
knowing that during editing he'd have to repeatedly revisit a subject he had previously not talked much about publicly. It sounds you would think that, and I let's let's be clear. I wasn't. I hadn't avoided telling it, and believe me, there was a years and years of therapy that prior to all this. Like, you, you, I don't recommend if you have some traumatic event to just dive headfirst into filmmaking. You know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of work that goes up to it. Yeah. Um, to be perfectly honest, I mean, I don't know if it was a defense mechanism or just the process, but being a filmmaker allowed me to step back from it in the editing process hmm. and watch it as a creative project as a film and watch it as a third party. Is it, so did it in a sense did it get easier the more you saw it? Um the, it, it's you know the human condition is different on every single day. So one day is super easy and I'm like this is great and this is really interesting and it's inspired and I'm I'm super uh energetic about some creative decision we're making and then 2 weeks later I have a more of a hard time watching some stuff. Um if you don't mind, can I talk about the like. tragedy that lies at the heart of this film? Your mother, former model, a beautiful woman inside mm. and out, it seems, mm. center of her community in a lot of ways, it seemed like like the center of the neighborhood. Absolutely. Everybody loved her. Absolutely. And what's crazy to me is that everybody in the neighborhood seemed to know that her ex-boyfriend was stalking her and had threatened her. Yes. And yet somehow this act couldn't be stopped. What does that do to you? in terms of like the way you relate to safety, your concept of safety in the world? You know, I think that the organ between my ears is much more damaging to myself than anything in the real world. You know, I think of scarier things than are actually presented to me. And you have to understand, 1983 was when this happened. There wasn't uh, visibility about domestic abuse. You know, we didn't have the verbiage and we didn't have the knowledge and the information about it. You know, especially in that little community, we didn't really even know that that was a reality. You know, I mean, that could be possible. Yeah. At 15 years old, the furthest thing from my mind was that this could potentially end in a terrible tragedy. Right. So you're dealing with that and you're dealing with the fact that for, for many years, your mother's killer was still yeah. on the loose. Yeah. While the band that you were in, Jane's Addiction, actually started blowing up and becoming incredibly popular. And it, it's a fascinating part of the movie where this time in your life that should be amazing, you're actually frightened and unhappy and descending into heroin addiction. Yes. Like the last time I was downtown for any period of time was right over here on Skid Row when we used to buy syringes. We're in downtown LA. Yeah. yeah. Well, there was, uh, that's where the vets used to go hang out and they would get insulin needles. Because back in the 80s and 90s, you couldn't just go into a drugstore or go to a needle exchange. There wasn't anything like that. So we would have to buy needle, uh, insulin needles off the vets for two bucks a pop. So I'd go from playing the Forum, which is a big venue here, and getting in my car and going to Skid Row to buy a $2 syringe off the street. And yet like, there, was no, <laughs> there was no glamour to any of it. But, uh, but simultaneously, Jane's Addiction's music is not inherently super dark there no. i'm thinking of songs like summertime rolls there was an almost hippie aspect to your music there was the hippie aspect of the music and there were songs like idiots rule and ben caught stealing which were funny like yeah. straight up funny exactly so but could you relate to those songs during this dark period where your mother's killer is on the loose and you're wrestling with addiction yeah but i mean even when you're shooting dope every day not every day is bad Let's be honest about this. You know what I mean? You don't keep doing it if it's awful all the time. Oh, yeah. So there are times that are fun. There are times when you feel love. There are times when you're having a great time and laughing. Was there a song that you would play that seemed especially cathartic at that time? I always had an affinity for Then She Did mm. that had everything to it that I loved about music, which was space, 
lyrical depth, uh, musicality, a little bit of prog, a little bit of goth. Did you, when you played that, did, could you forget what was going on? Did, was it actually escapism? Or? Well, the whole all the time the shows were. Yes, this killer was on the run for all these years, these early years of Jane's Addiction. But I think one of the things that saved my life, ironically, at a time when I was also arguably trying to kill it, um, were the shows and was the music and was the was the band and having direction. And I looked outside. One thing I do want to make clear that I don't I don't blame the murder for my drug addiction. There are millions and millions of people who go through trauma and lose loved ones and have deaths in their family that don't become junkies. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's true. Although you do, I mean, literally the night that your mother is killed mm-hmm. is the night that you say that you first took drugs and realized mm-hmm. they were had oh, a yeah. great numbing effect. Prior to that, I had only smoked weed or had drinks with my friends and just it was a laugh. That was the first time I smoked and realized, I don't feel so bad right now. And I feel guilty for not feeling so bad right now, but I can deal with it. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like, I don't feel that guilty. Actually, speaking of, of guilt, something you admit to in the film is that, you know, you were a teenager when this happened. Mm-hmm. And in a very teenagery way, you actually used this event as an excuse to get out of anything. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting out of school or not doing homework or coming home late or whatever kind of trouble I would be in, I could point to that event and say, well, what do you expect? I just went through this terrible tragedy. Yeah. And people would kind of back off, you know, and you just kind of learned that art of manipulation a little bit. There were a lot of things that I put in the film and left in the film because... I know as a trauma survivor, people feel shame on top of their trauma. Meaning? Meaning if I survived this trauma, my mom's death, and then used that death to get out of school, knowing that I was that manipulative about it, that's the kind of shame that I'm trying to shed light on and say, look, people do this, you know, and that's just sometimes where the brain naturally wants to go. But it's like, it's okay. You know, it's okay to have that awareness. Having the awareness and learning from it allows you to not repeat that behavior. Do you work, do you speak to or work with people who are victims of crime? I know that you're shown in the I, film, you're shown I taking PSA. I have, so. and that's something I want to do more of. Um, what do you tell them? One of the things that I have always uh, made pretty clear is that, you know, there's this mythical word that gets floated around this community, which is closure. And um, my experience is that there really isn't closure, Hmm. that there's never a day where it's all good. (laughs) It's like a nice little ribbon is on the situation and you can put it away and never have to think about it. It's closed. No, this thing is going to be open forever and ever. What does happen is it gets easier to live with. What does happen is you can help others by sharing your story. Sometimes just letting someone know that they're not alone is helpful for them and being of service to somebody else is cathartic for yourself. And I find that there's more, I guess, more examples of feeling closure in those times when I'm being there for someone else. The film ends with a song by Elliot Smith, yeah, who's another musician yeah. and addict, yeah. but who 
at least apparently, gave in to the darkness and yeah. committed suicide. Yeah. Why choose that song to end with? I That's an interesting question. Um, uh, he's one of my favorite artists of all time. Certainly identify with his addiction. Certainly identify with his tragic nature and darkness. The song that we chose, Fond Farewell, has a juxtaposed emotion to it. It's super sad and it's super celebratory. And I think that kind of spoke to the nature of the film because in, a, in another light, I was celebrating my mom's life. The light burns now black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Dave Navarro, he produced the film Morning Sun. That's spelled with a U for obvious reasons. It's out now on iTunes. If you can handle some very unsettling images and themes, it is a mind-bender. It also screens this Sunday in L.A. Details at dinnerpartydownload.org. And that's the Dinner Party Download for this week, folks. Our producer is Jackson Musker. Ina Patak is our associate producer. And our associate digital producer is Christina Lopez. Our interns are Carla Javier and Christian Coons. Jeff Peters engineered this week. Larissa Anderson is our executive executive producer. And now, before we leave you, here's one for the road, a song to spin on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Jazz bassist, vocalist, and composer Esperanza Spalding just released a new album. It's called D Plus Evolution, and it's far funkier than the phrase jazz vocalist would lead you to believe. Here's a track from it called Earth to Heaven. Bon appetit. Thought and strength and breath ain't much else left. I have your feel before you On the other side, they should to go. Withdrawing from the need to achieve. Be careful what you believe in strong. For you carry it on. There are no perfect amends here. You get to just keep on getting there, getting there. There's no so test here you get to just keep on getting there, getting there. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. All right, nice show, man. Thanks. By the way, I like the eyeliner and kilt look. That totally works. Oh, thanks, man. But lose the bagpiper. It's too much. Too much. The Splendid Table, insightful and useful conversation every single week for your life in and out of the kitchen. Speaking of useful, this week Lynn talks to superstar chef Daniel Ballou in his kitchen about how he makes that garlicky mayonnaise aioli. I am putting one clove of raw garlic who uh, split and remove the germ as now, well. Now why are you taking the germ out? Oh, because that one time, you know, I worked in France for a chef called, I didn't work with him directly, but I heard his comment and the germ of garlic was giving a very vulgar taste. To the dish. <laughs> it would never have occurred to me that a dish could be vulgar. That's this week on The Splendid Table. Subscribe at iTunes or via your favorite podcast app.